0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 264 we visit with Michael Allman, author of The Tannery, a true story of racial injustice in 1900 in Wilkes County, North Carolina. The Tannery transports readers to the turbulent world of the post-Reconstruction South. Reflecting issues prominent in today's headlines, themes of black voter suppression and intimidation, the violence and depravity of vigilante justice, and the rise of Jim Crow drive the narrative to its dramatic and surprising conclusion. Fry Galliard, civil rights historian, author of A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, says this about the book. Riveting, in his debut novel, Michael Allman has given us a page turner. Far more than a legal thriller, though it is that, the tannery is historical fiction at its finest. A story set near the turn of the 20th century in North Carolina some of this tale will sound disturbingly familiar to readers in the 21st century all the more reason to consider its lessons history can come alive in a great work of fiction this is one of those before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today i'd like to thank you for being here we are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time Join us here on the podcast I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at landisway.com There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and soon uh, print book as well. It's, uh, it's a novel that uh, explores a 250-year-old North Carolina mystery set in Charlotte, uh, which if solved uh, might change U.S. history, uh, possibly the first great American government conspiracy. John Adams called it one of the greatest curiosities, one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. And Thomas Jefferson called it spurious and an apocryphal gospel. I'm talking about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which is the heart of this novel, uh, but it's modern-day set in a uh, retirement community where the reality of getting older is a combination of fear, doubt, humor, and new life, and where these characters that uh, I've invented transport readers to the courtroom and then to the Virginia countryside to prove that age is just a number when searching for and finding the truth. Hope you'll check that out at LandisWay.com. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Michael, welcome to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here,
0: Landis. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, and congratulations on the tannery.
0: Well, I I really very much appreciate that. Uh, You as an author know what it's like to get a book published and to hold it in your hand. Uh, It's a magic moment.
1: It is a magic moment, and uh, we're going to be talking about that book today. Um, but but first, uh, let's talk a little bit about you and how you got into this book writing uh, thing here. Uh, like me, you're a recovering attorney, but you're not a trial. You weren't a trial lawyer. You're an international business lawyer. And for our listeners, you and I met uh, when we served on an arbitration panel last year, and we got to talking you know, when we had a break and, uh, oh, you're an author, I'm an author, and we got into this this little thing. But uh, you were kind of raised in a small town, Michael, uh, Pilot Mountain uh, in the Piedmont foothills in North Carolina. Uh, you went to, uh, I guess, Chapel Hill Memorial Scholarship. You had a Fulbright Scholar. You pretty much were a business guy for, for many, many years. And now you got a book. What gifts?
0: <laughs> well, you know, I've asked myself that many times, Landis. Uh, how in the world does an international business lawyer and business consultant and arbitrator, how in the world uh, does a book about historical fiction in 1900 in North Carolina come out of my head? Um, and I trace it back to the fact that I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I generally get through between 50 or 60 books a year. Uh, and I've done that for many, many years. And, you know, somewhere along the line, I began to think, Landis, well, maybe just maybe there's a book in me. Um, and so, you know, debut writers or all writers, I suppose, are told to write what you know. And as you said, I grew up in a very small town, Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, Surrey County, right next door to Wilkes. And during my teenage years, My grandfather and I used to make regular trips to Wilkes County and to North Wilkesboro to deliver uh, merchandise that he was uh, placing in various outlets over there. And every time we passed on 268 going into town, I could see that that tall smokestack uh, uh, pointing up from the old tannery. And I got fascinated with that. And I said, what in the world was that? And why is the whole place in such a ruin? Uh, that's because the tannery was destroyed uh, in 1940. And the 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 inspiration for the book and for the title of the book is the C.C. C. Smoot & Sons Tannery, which was the largest leather tannery in the southeast during its years of operation from 1897 until the 1940 flood. Um, and if you combine that with the rich and compelling history uh, of Wilkes County, I began to think, well, maybe I could build a story around that. I mean, if you've got a county, for example, that has Daniel Boone, uh, Colonel Cleveland and the Overmountain Men, Ing and Chang Bunker, the original Siamese twins who settled in uh, Wilkes County and somehow, awkwardly, no doubt, managed to sire 21 children between them after they married twin sisters from Surrey County. Uh, if you can't make a story out of that, then, uh, <laughs> then you don't have much imagination. So uh, that's that's basically how I got started.
1: Yeah, that's great. So um, you know, when when, when authors uh, whether they've written one book or whether it's their debut novel, uh, the first question they have to uh, ask themselves is, uh, you know, what am I going to write about? You know, the, the the what if for the story. So talk a little bit, Michael, about how you fell into the what if for this story uh, enough to make you want to research it for years and then and then write it.
0: Well, you know, you're right, Landis. I have, for most of my career, been an international business lawyer. But as part of that, I also did quite a bit of litigation at the beginning of my practice. And as you well know, uh, I'm still involved in arbitration cases and trying cases in front of an arbitration panel. Um, So again, getting back to write what you know, I thought, well, maybe lawyers write about Things like murders and crimes and trial scenes and things like that. (laughs) So, uh, I certainly wanted to write um, an entertaining, compelling story. Uh, And that was the main driver for me that that something that would entertain people, that would have surprises in it, twists and turns all the way to the end. Um, But at the end of the day, I also, as I got into the research, and we can talk about that process, but as I got into the research about, turn-of-the-century politics, social and racial conditions in North Carolina. Um, I thought I knew something about that. I like Southern history, but I was—I um, realized that we need to take a little bit deeper dive into some of the more shameful personalities and events that characterized uh, racial conditions, particularly in North Carolina and throughout the South at the beginning of the 20th century. And so... Uh, It's also it's a murder mystery, uh, a courtroom thriller, but it's also at its base, Landis, uh, it's a story about justice, uh, a story about Ben Waterman as he fights for justice for poor Virgil Wade, uh, a mixed race teenage boy who's accused of the brutal and savage murder of the young and beautiful daughter of the local tannery owner in North Wilkesboro.
1: Yeah, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that storyline. Uh first I'm gonna let listeners know that when we're done here, you're and I are gonna jump over to our Patreon channel and we're gonna talk about the uh challenges and the excitement of being a debut novelist, because there are challenges and there's excitement and there's a lot to do. So we'll be doing that at uh Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Podcast. But uh Michael, you had uh some great reviews for this book. Um I-, I was fortunate to be asked by you to to read your book early and to to provide a a review that's in the book. And one of the things I said was that the, this fast-paced courtroom drama is laced with the truth of an early 1900s past gone backward. And I'd like to talk about that just a minute, the fact that our past turned on itself around 1900, probably 1898, 1900. Uh, this is a little bit of the history that drives the narrative uh, in this story. Um, things were perking along in Reconstruction, uh, you know, uh, African-Americans were uh, starting to get the right to vote. They they elected a Republican governor. And then suddenly the Democrats weren't happy with where things were going. Let's talk about what's happening at the turn of the century, because that's integral to your book here.
0: Well, you have to go back um, to the Civil War, of course, which changed everything in the South. Uh, and after the uh, Civil War was over, the South was completely devastated economically. Uh, and um It was just the South was basically prostrate. Um, And in in that time, um, all of a sudden, out of a population of about a million people, 330,000 or more black people all of a sudden found themselves legally free, but totally on their own. Uh, And it wasn't really clear what what um, what their future prospects could be. Uh, Well, along came the Reconstruction Amendments, 1865 to 1870, which, as you said, granted blacks full citizenship and civil rights. It abolished slavery, and it gave black people the right to vote. And boy, did they vote. Uh, Turnout uh, routinely approached 90 percent in North Carolina. Uh, And all across the South, uh, more than 2,000 blacks were elected. Black men were voting. Only men, of course. But uh, around 2,000 or more blacks were elected to local and state offices, uh, and almost 200 of them were elected to federal offices. Well, this was uh, intolerable uh, as far as the the white um, ruling class was concerned, all Democrats, because the Democratic Party at that day and time had been the party of uh, the pro-slavery party th- throughout its existence since since Thomas Jefferson. Um, And so they could only grit, grit their teeth and seethe until they had their chance. And their chance came when the um, when the the federal troops were withdrawn at the end of Reconstruction in 1877. They gradually began, uh, Democrats began to gradually regain control of the of the electoral process and the legislature in North Carolina. But even then, some blacks continued to vote and with some success. George Henry White, for example, from North Carolina, was the only black serving in the U.S. Congress between 1897 and 1901. Um, After the success of the white supremacy campaign, um, which was put together by Furnifold Simmons and Cameron Morrison and uh, Charles B. Aycock, assisted by Josephus Daniels and his Raleigh News and Observer. Well, after those campaigns were over, black registration and participation in the electoral uh, system began to fall off a cliff. Uh, In 1896, for example, 125,000 blacks were registered and we had about 80 to 90 percent turnout. By 1904, uh, because of the white supremacy campaigns and the Jim Crow laws, uh, that participation was down to 1,300 people. So, a lot of people that you and I growing up were told were heroes in North Carolina politics actually have a lot to answer for in terms of their suppression of blacks and their right to vote, which, by the way, <clears throat> was not restored until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965.
1: We've touched on this subject before on the podcast with um, Philip Gerard, who had a book, Cape Fear Rising, where he deals with the, uh, uh, the coup that took place uh, in Wilmington. Uh, in that 1898 time period where uh, basically there was a, a slaughter. The, the the white mob took over, um, killed uh, innocent uh, blacks, uh, took over the, the local ruling class. And so, and, and it's one of these things that I think people don't realize that, uh, you know, this movement, this white supremacy movement sort of sprung from that in North Carolina and continued, you know, through the Jim Crow era. And you've sort of picked up on that, Michael, and set this novel right down in the center <laughs> of that activity by putting a young black boy on trial uh, for allegedly stabbing uh, you know, a very popular woman in the, in the small town of Wilkes County. I'm, I'm curious.
0: Whose father, by the way, was the largest employer in the town.
1: Okay, so everything's against this kid, right? So uh, we're going to be talking about the characters here in just a minute, uh, but the themes themselves, the ones you cover in in the tannery, um, these are themes that are still with us today, are they not?
0: Well, I'll have to tell you, Landis, um, I started researching this novel on again, off again, 14 years ago, uh, and I had no idea at the time, that the themes that drive the tannery would prove to be so relevant uh, to modern um, times when we are so polarized. Uh, but yes, the themes that that drive the tannery are fresh on everybody's mind today.
1: Yeah. I believe you quoted uh, William Faulkner in one of your uh, presentations, the past is never dead. It's not even past. That's that's right. That's exactly <laughs> and, uh, right. And from the book of Ecclesiastes, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and and you know, that's the thing about uh, you know, you encourage people to read, you encourage people to study the past. But it's amazing. I mean, we we kind of jokingly use that, you know, reference. Well, the history will repeat itself, but so often it, it does. And it's really uh, we're sort of in a divisive environment uh these days, um, where nobody can be right and everybody's wrong. Uh and angry. And angry and angry. But so so that is sort of boiling in the in the background. Um, and so there's Guilty until proven innocent pretty much at this time period, right?
0: Well, if you if you can place yourself back in that day and time, you have a situation where a young black boy is accused of murdering this young woman, and uh, his skinning knife uh, with his carved initials on it uh, is plunged deep in her chest. And so as, the, as far as the local prosecutor, and he also, it's, it's also evident that he beat her before uh, before the, the knife attack. Uh and so in those days and times, if you have a situation where a, a a black boy is accused of that kind of crime, uh the odds are very, very much stacked against him. But um as as the book explains, local lawyer Ben Waterman, um who's a friend of the governor's, uh who's also from Wilkes in the book, he's not so sure the prosecutor thinks it's an open and shut case, and why wouldn't he? He's got all this evidence. But but Ben Waterman and his friend Roscoe Elwood McGee, who runs the local newspaper, they begin to investigate at the instigation of the governor, and they begin to uncover some evidence um, that doesn't exactly fit the prosecutor's case. In fact, it points in an entirely different direction. And so once that is done, and once Ben begins to undertake the defense of Virgil Wade, uh, the, the young black boy... Um, we're off to the races.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk uh, uh, with, with the time we have today about separating fact from fiction. Before we do that, we've got uh, we've got a read here. We do this on Charlotte's podcast where we where authors give voice to the written words. Uh, you, you've picked a little scene uh, in the book uh, that's uh, it's a courtroom scene, which is great. Uh, but let's set it up. Let's let's tell our listeners where we are in the book before we we uh, get into this.
0: Well, Virgil Wade is captured, and he's put into the Wilkes County Jail, and the local boys are not, too, um, are not too happy about that. They want justice, and they want it now, and that means getting a hold of Virgil Wade and uh, lynching him. Uh, the scene that you're talking about in the book uh, refers to an attack on the jail by the Red Shirts, who were the successors to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and they want Virgil Wade. They plan a burning cross outside the jail, throw a uh, burning torch inside the jail, and they want the boy brought out. Well, disaster is narrowly averted, uh, and Virgil is safe, but the governor has had enough at this point. He doesn't want another Wilmington in his own hometown. So the governor activates the militia in North Carolina and moves the boy to Raleigh for safekeeping at Central Prison until his trial can be conducted. Well, Tolliver, the um, the prosecutor, doesn't like that a bit, and so he, he uh, files a motion in court in Wilkes County to have the boy sent back for trial, and Ben Waterman fights against that. Um, Sheriff Poindexter is on the stand, and Ben Waterman has some questions for him.
1: All right. Anytime you're ready, take it away.
0: Ben looked down at his notes, then asked, You testified that the attack on the jail was just some boys raising a little cane, right? That's what I said, Poindexter nodded. A whole lot of nothing, really. I see, uh, said Ben, taking a step toward the witness box. So tell me, Sheriff, who is Rufus? Rufus, said Poindexter, pulling a face. Why, Rufus is just a dog, a plot hound, belonged to Cripp." We used him and some other dogs to, you know, find the Schumann girl down by the river. Belonged, you say? Past tense? What happened to Rufus, Sheriff? Before Poindexter could answer, Ben continued, his voice rising, his raised finger cutting through the air. Isn't it true that Luther Wade, the leader of that gang of thugs, just raising a little cane, as you put it? Isn't it true that Luther Wade coldly took out his pistol and mercilessly, merciless, mercilessly shot Crip Goins' dog dead right there in front of the jailhouse? Shot Rufus dead in the doornail? An uneasy murmur moved through the courtroom. This was new information. Poindexter lowered his eyes, nodded, Looking up, he replied, well, that's true. The head man did shoot the dog, but, and wouldn't it be fair to say, Sheriff Poindexter, that you know, you personally know some of those men, those hooded, cross-burning cowards, maybe red-shirt friends of Luther Wade, maybe the same men that were with Luther Wade at the jail when Tolliver made his public announcement earlier the same day. Tolliver started to object, made eye contact with the judge, thought better of it. Poindexter shuffled his feet, squirmed in his chair. Well, maybe, he answered, maybe I know some of them. And do you remember, Mr. Tolliver, having a conversation with Luther Wade right after his big show that Monday morning, right there on the steps of the jail just hours before the attack? Tolliver shot to his feet. Objection, he shouted. I resent his insinuation, Your Honor. This is not proper cross-examination. This must not be permitted. Overrule. Sit down, Mr. Tolliver. I'll decide what is permissible in my courtroom and what is not. You would be well to remember that. Now answer the sheriff. That's the question, sheriff. <clears throat> Poindexter was silent for a moment. Then he blew out a breath. Yes, yes, he repeated solemnly. I saw them talking. Judge Transu frowned, shot a look in Tolliver's direction. Thank you, sheriff. Ben then moved on. So, let's assume the judge grants Mr. Tolliver's motion and the Wade boy is returned to your jail. It's just you and Mr. Goins there, right, to guard the boy, keep him safe, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Well, uh, that's right, but, and, Ben interrupted, talking faster now, in the flow, let's suppose the Klan comes back for the boy, with even more men this time. Are you telling this court that you are prepared to use force to protect him, that you can protect him, that you will, without hesitation, take your Winchester rifle and open fire on the clansmen, some of whom may be sitting in this very courtroom, some of your friends, your neighbors, trade their lives for Virgil Wade's? Poindexter sat silent, his jaw working. Ben turned, faced the spectators. Take a look out there, Sheriff. They're all right here, right in front of you. All good citizens of Wilkes. Tell me, Sheriff. Point them out to me. Call their names. You said you know them. Tell me which of these men you would shoot first, and how many, just to save the life of a poor colored boy. An uneasy rumbling filled the courtroom as spectators looked nervously left and right, fixed their eyes on the Sheriff, waiting for his answer. Poindexter gazed into the crowd before him, turned to Tolliver with a helpless look, Then he looked to the judge, but there was no relief to be had there. Shaking his head, his jaw firmly set, his shoulders slumped, Poindexter slowly rose, stepped out of the witness box, and started back to his seat at the prosecution table. The sharp rap of Judge Transu's gavel echoed like a rifle shot through the courtroom. Sheriff Poindexter, get back up here. Take your seat, sir. Poindexter kept walking, Ben threw his hands in the air, blew out a sigh. no more questions for this witness your honor he said grimly
1: all right that's a great uh, a great scene uh, we uh we see Ben waterman here <clears throat> he's he's got some uh, courtroom acumen but he he really is up uh, up against uh, quite a number of obstacles here uh, to, to try to represent uh young Virgil Wade, tell us about Ben Waterman um, and, uh, you you know, the character and and a little bit about him because uh, nobody else is going to take this case but him.
0: Well, that's exactly right. And he takes the case because he is basically the adopted son of the governor of North Carolina in the book. Um, uh, The governor is called uh, Judge. He likes to be called Judge. Robert Rousseau, Cotton Bob Maxwell. And he is the Republican governor that you mentioned that the fusionist parties were, were able to elect in 1896 and he, and Wilmington happened on his watch. Ben Waterman is sort of his political fixer. He's also his chief of staff in Raleigh, and he's also from Wilkes, grew up in, 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 uh, the governor's household there. And, um, the governor determines there's not going to be another Wilmington on his watch. He's in basically the last year of his term. It's clear that the Democrats are going to win. He can't run for reelection. And so he sends Ben Waterman uh, back to his hometown in North Wilkesboro to look into things, to investigate, and if necessary, to defend Virgil Wade. Uh, And that's Virgil accepts that job and he gets to North Wilkesboro. And like I said before, he and Roscoe L. Wood McGee, begin to uncover some evidence uh, that does not point in the same direction as the prosecutor would have you believe. In fact, it points in an entirely different direction.
1: Yeah, well, I, I go up to the Watauga County Boone area quite a bit, uh, pass through Wilkes County. Uh, you know, it's uh, it looks like an Independence Boulevard from Charlotte. There's lots lots of commerce there now. But let's talk about what Wilkes County was uh, about the time of this uh setting for this novel, it was poor county, right? It was uh, c- pretty much cut off because of lack of roads, um, and sometimes referred to as the lost province. Talk about that.
0: Well, you're, you're exactly right about that. Wilkes was poor, it was rural, um, and it was cut off from basically everybody. Uh, all the other counties in the state, and, and you're right, uh, it was referred to commonly as the Lost Province, and that's the that's the name that Roscoe Elwood McGee ch- chose for his uh, for his newspaper. But uh, by 1900, things were beginning to change in Wilkes. Um, the town of North Wilkesboro was founded on the north side of the Yadkin River. The railroad came in 1890, uh, and North Wilkesboro was really a boom town at the time. And by 1900, it had its own telegraph system, telephone system, electric lights. A new opera house was on the way um, and things were booming.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, look, in the time we have left, let's do a little bit of uh, writing life here for a second. Uh, when you got into this project, uh, Michael, you... You didn't write the story initially. You you researched and you researched and you researched. And I think you told me a story about how your wife finally said, "Look, you need to stop talking about this book and start writing it."
0: (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. You know, uh, the easy part of the book for a lawyer was the research and the outlining because you know lawyers are linear thinkers, and so research and outlining uh, comes naturally to us. So last year, uh, last uh, spring of 2020. I came downstairs, uh, and I was very proud because I had in my hand what I thought was the final outline. And I said, Helen Ruth, I think I've got it. I think I've worked out all the kinks. I think I've resolved all the problems and removed all, all the obstacles in this outline. And I, I, I think it's ready to go. I want you to take a look at it. Well, uh, those of you who know my, Helen, uh, my wife, Helen Ruth, um, will not be surprised that she turned to me, put her hands on her hips, and said, listen, Almond, you need to know something. All of your friends and I, we are sick and tired of hearing about your research, your outline, uh, what you're going to do with this book. You got no excuse now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Go upstairs and either write the thing or shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, like all good husbands uh, do, I obeyed she who must be obeyed. And I went upstairs and faced my computer screen. And I got to tell you, Landis, that was a terrifying experience sitting yeah. down sitting down at a blank computer screen wondering you know i knew what i wanted to do landis but i wasn't for one of the first times in my life i wasn't sure that i knew how to do it
1: well i love your reference to she must be obeyed uh, john mortimer's uh Rumpole of the bailey if you haven't ever read any of those books uh they're, they're wonderful you can watch them on probably a pbs channel but talk about getting into the courtroom and uh taking charge. rumpole was, was that, was that guy. Okay. So the research took you several years, the writing you jumped into, um, and then came along this idea of revision, right?
0: Of revision. Yeah. Well, I didn't really revise it much, Landis. I have to tell you, I, I was in fact ready. I was telling Helen Ruth the truth, um, that once I had the outline and, and overcame the panic of sitting down to the blank computer screen and wrote the first words, um, that the sky was the color of sour milk, the late afternoon sun, a crystal marble burning through it. Well, I sat back and I said, well, that's not bad. <laughs> and, and then five months and 125,000 words later, there it was. It was done. I wrote the book uh, between uh, May and October of 2020.
1: Well, I know it's not 125,000 words now because you you did some revising to kind of trim it and tighten it. I know that process
0: takes
1: place, you know, to get it down to more manageable. But um, so the tannery is not uh, autobiographical, but it draws on some of your personal and professional experiences. It draws on sort of the area you grew up in.
0: Um, Write what what you know.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and you know, what you know doesn't necessarily mean what you grew up with and what, what you're surrounded by, but also what you research and what you can find out. That can, right. be, that can be what you know as well. Um, I, I'd like to uh, talk about just quickly separating fact from fiction here, because I think listeners would be curious to know uh, where your imagination had to kick in based upon what the research you did in this particular story.
0: Well, in my experience, and I, and I expect in, in the experience of most fans of historical fiction like me and like you, um, readers want to know where the historical ends and the fiction begins. They want to know where the line is between, between reality and imagination. Um, the, the story of the book, The Murder of, Vir- Vir- of, of Rachel Schumann by, by Virgil Wade, um, that's all fictional. That never happened. There was a tannery uh, in in North Wilkesboro, but basically all of the buildings and the places and the venues in the book are real, and some of the characters are real. And the challenge in writing historical fiction, I believe, uh, or I found uh, as a result of my experience, is you want to tell a compelling, fast-paced, entertaining story, but you've somehow got to weave into the story. Um, historical fact and historical context, and you you need to do that in such a way that you keep up the pace of the book, so the lawyer doesn't, uh, and so that the reader doesn't lose interest as they read through the book. And that that hopefully I have achieved that, but that certainly was a challenge as I was uh, as I was writing the book. There are yeah. many many of the many of the characters, um, mostly political characters, are real. Furnifold Simmons was, in fact, the mastermind of the white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900, and he was assisted by Charles B. Aycock and Cameron Morrison, who would become two governors of North Carolina later on. And they were, in fact, supported by Josephus Daniels, who was the real uh, editor and publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer at the time.
1: So before we jump over to Patreon and talk about the challenges and excitement of a debut author... uh, What's uh, one of the biggest lessons you've learned uh, about trying to write a novel?
0: Well, one lesson was that I could, in fact, do it. um, Because I'll have to tell you, that is not something that I took for granted when I first started writing the book. Um, Another lesson is you need discipline and you need isolation. Um, and I had that, as Helen Ruth pointed out, in the middle of the pandemic, I was able to go up to my uh, man cave upstairs um, and start writing at about 830 in the morning and 230 in the afternoon. I would come down with 10 or 12 or 20 pages that I had written that day. Helen Ruth would re- would, would read them and give her comments. And the next day, before I wrote anything new, uh, I incorporated everything that I thought needed to be changed from the day before. And so, in that way, I was able to get through the book without 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 any serious revision, restructuring, or reorganizing of the book.
1: Yeah, that's great. So, listeners, we've been talking with Michael Almond. He's the author of *The Tannery*. It's uh, by the time this episode releases, it'll be in stores and available uh, to pick up. It's uh, it's an, a, a wonderful, enticing story that takes you back in time, but it has, as, as Michael has said, a a, a murder mystery. And uh, if you like uh, legal thrillers, uh, like I do, you'll enjoy the courtroom scenes as well. Oh, one other thing, listeners, you can find all this, the links to Michael and also images of the the book cover and everything else in the show notes at com. Michael, it's been great having you on Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: And it's been a pleasure being being here, Atlantis. Thank you very much.
1: Well, that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.
0: If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice because when you do, Our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
1: And if you're inclined to help us, help authors, give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter.
0: You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to QueenCity Podcast